with support from the Climate Kick Alumni Association. Welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Kaners. Well, what happens on a national judicial court rarely has international implications. But as with most things, there are exceptions. And this month, we've been witnessing what is probably the exception to end all exceptions, namely the U.S. Supreme Court, and in turn, the future of the planet. That might sound like an exaggeration, but let me explain, because it's been a wild couple of weeks on the U.S. Supreme Court. First, about two weeks ago on February 9th, came the shocking news that in a 5-4 decision, the court had granted a stay against the Clean Power Plan. Now, the Clean Power Plan is the cornerstone of Obama's fight on climate change, and it formed a key part of the pledge that America made during the climate talks in Paris. The plan, enforced by the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, puts strict regulations on the use of coal-fired power plants by states. The court's decision to grant the stay caught observers completely off guard, and it raised serious questions about if America would be able to meet the commitments it made in Paris for reducing its carbon emissions. And the thing is that these commitments the U.S. made were key to getting the rest of the world, and particularly developing nations like China and India, to commit their own ambitious emissions targets. So with America's actions suddenly in doubt because of the court's ruling, people wondered, was the Paris Accord in jeopardy only two months after it was agreed to? And then, just as everyone was processing the ramifications of the ruling, another bombshell landed. Antonin Scalia, one of the court's most consistent conservative justices, and one of the five who voted for the stay, died at age 79. So what happens now? And what does the rollercoaster ride of the past two weeks, and the death of Antonin Scalia, mean for the makeup of the court, the future of the clean power plan, and for the future of the planet? Well, to help us navigate these questions, I'm joined today by journalist John Upton. John Upton is a senior science writer at Climate Central, where he covers, among other topics, international climate negotiations, oceans research, and climate change adaptation. His reporting work has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, Slate, Vice, and Grist. And there's one more thing we need to cover before we begin. Supreme Court nominees are selected by the president, but then they must be confirmed by the Senate which is currently controlled by Republicans. And almost as soon as word got out about Scalia's death, some senior Republican senators were suggesting that they would refuse to approve any nominee that Obama put forward. And apparently, they were true to their threat. Because yesterday, Tuesday, senior Republican Senate leaders, along with all the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, announced that they would not only refuse to confirm any nominee that Obama puts forward, but they would refuse to even have the confirmation hearings or vote. This sets up an unprecedented showdown with the year left in Obama's mandate, and it all but closes the door on the prospects that a new Supreme Court justice will be confirmed before the presidential election. Anyway, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with John Upton. Well, John Upton, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So it's been a really dramatic couple of weeks on the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's had a, a big impact on international climate diplomacy in a, in a way that we might not think that a national court usually would. So I want to get to what happened with the actual court a bit later on. But first, I want to get some, some background because it involves something called the Clean Power Plan. Can you tell us about what the Clean Power Plan is? When was it introduced and, and what does it entail? 
The Clean Power Plan is the Obama administration's signature effort to try to slow down climate change, to try to, to, try to finally address the very high rates of carbon dioxide pollution that America has been putting out for decades. It would basically require the states of the US to reduce the amount of pollution that their electricity sectors release into the atmosphere. The way that the states can comply with the clean power plan is pretty flexible. They can shut down coal power plants and replace them with renewable alternatives. They can improve efficiency. And it's a it's a really a, a landmark rule by the EPA. It it bypasses Congress, which opposes climate rules. It relies on existing legislation, which was passed uh, the you know the the Clean Air Act of of some number of years ago. And it it basically is the very first effort by the U.S. to try to reduce pollution from the electricity sector. And so basically, this plan gives each state, like say New New York or uh, Florida a certain percentage of, of cuts they need to achieve? Yeah, each each state has a different number allocated to it, a, a percentage um, reduction that it needs to achieve by uh, by 2030. And then it has the flexibility to, to try to achieve those cuts in, in whatever manner it sees best. And so this plan actually played a, a rather outsized role in, in climate diplomacy internationally, both with agreements with the Chinese and just coming out of COP21, the, the Paris Accord. What was its role internationally and, and why has it had such a, a big impact? Well, during the uh, negotiations in Paris in December, the U.S. put forward a pledge to reduce its carbon emissions, its, its impact on the climate by about a quarter. The Clean Power Plan, which is the subject of uh, litigation right now, is the way that the U.S. will actually achieve that pledge. So without the Clean Power Plan, it would be very unclear how the U.S. would actually live up to the obligations it's undertaken before the United Nations to reduce its, uh, its own impacts on the climate. So the U.S. pledge in Paris and the Clean Power Plan cannot be seen in isolation. They are very much partner documents. Right. So in Paris, each country submitted their own plan called the, the INDCs, which would determine their own contribution to combating global warming worldwide. So, so this was a big part of what America was bringing to the table? Two of the most important pledges or INDCs made in Paris came from the two biggest polluters. One was from China and one was from the U.S., the fact that those two countries, which for a very long time resisted any kind of efforts to actually take any action to protect the climate, those two pledges from those two countries were really critical in getting other countries to, to believe that the Paris Agreement, that this international effort is something to really buy into, they, that they're finally ready to start acting on climate. And that created a confidence, that created a lot of momentum around the world going into Paris for other countries to come forth and, and make their own pledges and to, to take this whole process very seriously. And the U.S. pledge, the commitment that the U.S. made, was only really possible because of the Clean Power Plan, because the EPA is now finally taking steps to regulate carbon dioxide. It's just impossible to imagine the Paris Agreement having been the success that it was if the U.S. hadn't come forth with a plan demonstrating to the rest of the world that it had some kind of an approach figured out for reducing its impacts on the climate. So we got the agreement in Paris. It seemed to be, you know, great news um, going into to 2016. 
And then about a week and a half ago, maybe a bit longer by the time this is up, some breaking news happens. Can you tell us what happened? What, what did the Supreme Court say? Well, the, uh, a number of states, uh, uh, slightly more than half of the states in, in America are um, opposed to the Clean Power Plan. They do not want the EPA telling them to regulate the emissions, the climate emissions from their power sector. So that's about half the states in the U.S. are currently suing the EPA, trying to get this rule overturned on some fairly technical reasons related to states' rights and, and what they allege to be EPA overreach. Those states are joined by the coal industry and some business organizations in attempting to basically nullify this historic clean power plan. The decision, the, the, um, the lawsuit is, is presently before a, a court of appeals in D.C., which is a, it's a fairly liberal court. It's, it's expected to uh, approve the rules and to reject the lawsuit, and at which point it would probably send the decision onto the Supreme Court. And what happened is that uh, recently the appeals court, so the, the states have been trying to get a stay put on the clean power plan, which basically prevents the EPA from enforcing it until there's some kind of a, a legal resolution to their lawsuit. The uh, appeals court had decided against imposing that stay. That decision was appealed to the Supreme Court. And in, in a, what was really an unprecedented decision by the Supreme Court, just within the last couple of weeks, the justices there ruled 5-4 in favor of the coal industry and in favor of these states that oppose the Clean Power Plan. And the Supreme Court imposed really an unprecedented stay on the Clean Power Plan. I hear, I hear this was the first time that a stay has ever been issued on a, on a regulation before it got to the highest level. This, this has never happened before, and it took a lot of people by surprise. Um, a lot of people really interpreted this, a lot of experts interpreted this as a very bad sign for the Clean Power Plan. And the reason for that is that if the justices ruled 5-4 in favor of a stay against it, there were fears that they would have a similar ruling against the rules when they actually reached that court. So this was a really remarkable decision by the Supreme Court that uh, caused a lot of people, a lot of consternation, and it sent a signal to not only the U.S. but the rest of the world that the nascent American efforts to clamp down on climate pollution are very vulnerable and that they could very well be nullified by the highest court in the land. And that obviously um, had some pretty tremendous ripple effects all the way around the world. Was there a follow-up from diplomats? Were, were people open with uh, their fears about this ruling? Yeah, there were experts from around the world. So diplomats who were involved in the climate negotiations um, were not too outspoken. That's fairly typical. Some, some from smaller states and the particularly vulnerable states did warn that this threatened to potentially scuttle the Paris Agreement. Uh, experts in India told reporters that uh, if the Clean Power Plan was eventually rejected by the Supreme Court, that the Paris Agreement could effectively just be destroyed. Well, what was your original reaction when you heard the news? My reaction was I was very surprised by the ruling and uh, I realized immediately that this changed the equation for not only American efforts to reduce global warming, but for global efforts too, because the, the, the Paris Agreement is built heavily on trust. And if the US cannot demonstrate that it is very serious about reducing its own impact on the climate, then it kind of uh, it, it opens the door for other countries to, to, to withdraw their own support. So this was a very profound ruling with very strong effects around the world. 
with the five four ruling, yeah, a lot of people were, were suddenly who had felt quite confident about this case were suddenly very nervous. And then within a week of this ruling, something very dramatic happened, which was the passing of Justice Scalia, a Supreme Court justice who was appointed by President Reagan. And Scalia is a, a very dependable vote against any kind of environmental regulations. And he was, of course, one of the five Supreme Court justices who ruled in favor of a stay on the clean power plan. So so we just had this big ruling and, and suddenly one of the the five judges who issued the stay, who ruled in favor of the stay, suddenly suddenly dies. So now what happens? What, what does this mean for the, the fate of the clean power plan? So not only was Scalia one of the five justices who ruled in favor of the stay, but he is actually, of the nine justices, he is the most heavily opposed to environmental regulations. Uh, if the Constitution said that uh, the federal government is required to regulate uh, climate pollution, then he would have found a way to rule that it did not say that. He is really the most dependable vote for polluters, for con you know, some of these conservatives that you will find on the Supreme Court. So his death changed the equation completely. And so what had been a 5-4 ruling in favor of a stay on the clean power plan and then potentially a 5-4 ruling against the clean power plan, suddenly that becomes a very different equation. It becomes a 4-4 split. Such a scenario would uphold the lower court's decision. That decision has not been made. That decision will be made by an appeals court in D.C. that's quite liberal, that is certainly expected but not guaranteed to rule in favor of the clean power plan. So within just a week, we went from a scenario where it was looking likely that the clean power plan would be basically nullified to looking at a situation where it's likely that the clean power plan will actually be upheld. Now, there is a vacancy on that Supreme Court that needs to be filled at some point. And it's unlikely that Obama would ever nominate a justice who would rule against the clean power plan. It's not inconceivable, but it's very unlikely that he would do that. So now we have a situation where Obama will try to nominate a Supreme Court justice. The Republicans are very fearful of losing the conservative majority on that court. They will fight him tooth and nail. They have they immediately vowed to oppose any of his nominations, no matter who they were. But yeah, we have a situation where certainly within a couple of weeks, it was a, it was a real roller coaster. It went from it looked like the clean power plan would survive, then it looked like it would be basically destroyed, which, which could conceivably blow up the Paris Agreement. And then right away, just within days of that, it, it, the, the um, perception of, the, of its likelihood of being approved skyrocketed again. You mentioned the EPA uh, a few times, and uh, for those of us outside of America, mo I think most people won't necessarily know what the EPA is with too much detail. So it's the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, it's it's in charge of, for example, upholding like the Clean Air Act, um, which is the the 1970 piece of legislation that is a basis of the Clean Power Plan. Can you tell us a bit about this 2007 ruling that affirmed the right of the EPA to regulate CO2 emissions? Sure. So the EPA is the administrative branch here in the U.S. Um, so right now, the uh, you know President Obama appoints you know officials, bureaucrats to oversee the EPA, and and they 
issue rules, uh, environmental rules based on existing legislation, which is the, uh, the legislation is uh, approved by Congress. Now, obviously, Obama has become in a second term particularly staunch advocate of climate action. That is a, a major development here in the U.S. Previous governments have not been like that. Certainly the previous uh, George W. Bush administration was not particularly interested in, in climate change. Um, but while President Bush was, uh, was in power, a number of states did want uh, the federal government to regulate carbon dioxide pollution from the electricity sector. And they were of the mind that the Clean Air Act of 1970 compelled the government to regulate carbon dioxide emissions. The Bush administration argued that it was, it was not uh, required to do that. And this ended up at the Supreme Court, the very famous case of Massachusetts versus EPA. Massachusetts being a very liberal state in the northeastern U.S. Massachusetts and a number of other states argued that the federal government was required because of the 1970 Clean Air Act. They argued it was required to regulate and reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And they actually won that case before the Supreme Court in 2007. In, uh, in winning that lawsuit, the states, Massachusetts and other states, effectively compelled the US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to start drawing up some kind of a rule to reduce carbon dioxide pollution from power plants. That work got underway once Obama took power and it really picked up a lot of momentum in Obama's second term. And it's those rules that are now being challenged by a number of conservative governors and also by the fossil fuel industry. I just want to quickly go back to the, the 2007 ruling that ruled in favor of Massachusetts that the EPA had the, the obligation to, to regulate CO2 emissions. So to give, give an idea of, of Scalia, when it was being explained to him the particulars of how carbon pollution works, Scalia said, troposphere, whatever, and said, I told you before I'm not a scientist, that's why I don't want to have to deal with global warming, to tell you the truth. And another later, he said, when is the predicted cataclysm? And he wrote in the dissent that carbon dioxide is not strictly speaking pollution. So he really has never been a friend at all of, of any sort of environmental regulation, it sounds like. There's been a number of kind of best of hits being published by a number of media outlets lately with some of his quotes. He is staunchly opposed to environmental regulations of really any shape or form. There is really no way that you could ever expect him to rule in favor of an environmental regulation. He was appointed uh, by Ronald Reagan, and the way the U.S. legal system works is once you're appointed to the Supreme Court, then you as a justice can, can remain there until you retire or until you die. Now, at 79, Scalia remained there until the day that he died, and up until the very final week, he was causing a lot of problems for governments that try to introduce new ways of regulating pollution. So you mentioned that the Republican response was almost immediate, saying that they won't allow Obama to nominate someone. Can you talk about just like how quickly uh, this came out? Because it was only a couple hours after his death that it was already people like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, saying there's no way we will let Obama nominate anyone for the Supreme Court. The moment that news got out that Scalia had passed, there formed an immediate scrum in DC. Everybody recognized how significant this was. This is a, a very substantial development and nobody is 
nobody is mistaken about that uh, in the US, but particularly in DC. And the Republicans did something that was probably a miscalculation, which was that they, even before Obama had made an announcement, even before Obama had made any kind of reaction to Scalia's death, they came out and said that they would indeed oppose anybody who Obama nominated for the Supreme Court, the logic being that it's in his final year, which is just a strange argument. But um, in coming out and, and saying that they opposed anybody who Obama nominated for this court, for the Supreme Court, what they basically did was they ensured that once Obama nominates somebody, if he now nominates somebody who's very liberal, it will be very difficult for Republican critiques of his nominee to be taken seriously because it will just be seen as obstructionism because they've already made it clear that they simply will not support anybody who he nominates. It's obviously not going to be a rational consideration on their part. Right. They've backed themselves into a corner and if they just waited and, and, and let Obama nominate somebody and then sort of you know listed off the, the, you know, all, all the reasons that they oppose this uh, nomination then people might have taken that a bit more seriously and it, it might have been a, a better debate about it but now um, the Republicans have made it clear they simply do not want him nominating anybody and that's just gonna it just opens the door for Obama to to nominate somebody who's very liberal and and to have the Republican complaints kind of dismissed as being petty. I know you you know you write on the environment, so you're not an expert in in other areas of of legal challenges, but just to give a sense of of how big of a fight this is, it's not just the environment. there's all sorts of really contentious issues in America that a lot of times come down to Supreme Court rulings. There are a number of uh, lawsuits that are making their way to the Supreme Court right now that will have you know, really lasting effects um, for generations to come potentially around abortion, around gun rights, around environmental regulations. And in Scalia's passing, he, you know, he was a very conservative justice and his death potentially reshapes the potential verdicts or the potential decisions of the Supreme Court on some of these really critical issues that are about to come before the court. So the Republicans have a, a majority in the in the Senate. So is there any way Obama will be able to get someone through? The, it's the president's job to, to nominate Supreme Court justices. It's the Senate's job to vet and approve those. And the Republican Party currently controls the Senate. And so the Republican Party could indeed block any nomination that Obama puts forth. The thing is that Obama's now in his eighth term and he spent seven years already dealing with senators, with congressmen who are ardently opposed to him, who almost religiously hate him. So he has seven years of uh, extraordinary diplomatic um, experience under his belt. He's already naturally a diplomat. I mean, he's He's arguably one of the, the great diplomats in American presidential history. So we'll have to wait and see if, uh, if Obama can get some of the Republicans to come around and support one of his nominations. He would need, well, at least a half a dozen of them to do so. It does seem unlikely that he would do that, but it's not out of the question. Um, another alternative would be for some of these Republicans, if they like Obama's nomination, to simply not vote on it, to not oppose it, and uh, in doing so, allow the Democrats to support one of his uh, his nominations. And and although that seems unlikely, with the twists and turns we're seeing right now in D.C., I would not say that it's impossible. I think that uh, that is it, it's something that might happen. 
And if that does not happen, if Obama cannot get uh, a justice to replace Scalia onto the court before his term is done, then it will go to the next president. And that's where the stakes also get very high because the Democrats uh, this year who are running for president are leaning very strongly left, arguably more left than Obama. And the Republicans who are running for president are very far right. And none of the Republicans who are currently candidates for president support action on climate change. So the stakes are high not only for Obama's nomination to the Supreme Court, but the stakes just got even higher for the presidential election. And I guess it, it kind of ties in because the reason why he approached addressing climate change in this way in the first place was because there's no way he could ever get any legislation through the Republican uh, House or Senate, right? That's right. The, the, uh, the Republicans have had a pr profound effect on not only the way that the U.S. approaches climate action. Obama was forced to try to be very creative in drafting the rules, the, the, the Clean Power Plan, in such a way that it could be enacted through existing legislation and that he didn't have to actually ask the uh, Congress to approve anything. But it's even more profound than that because the entire basis of the Paris Agreement is based on the fact that no country is actually compelled to hit the targets. It's the, you know, the reduction in greenhouse gas pollution and so forth that they pledged to do in Paris. And the main reason for that is that uh, that would have required the, the Obama administration to go back to Congress and ask them to ratify the treaty, which would never have happened. And because of that, because of that opposition here in the U.S., the world now has a Paris Agreement with highly voluntary type of commitments. Right. So it couldn't be a binding treaty, in, in, at least in certain technical ways, or else it, it would have been a non-starter. There's no way it could have ever come into force. Yeah. So the, so the Republican opposition to any kind of climate action did shape not only the Clean Power Plan and the U.S. efforts to fight climate change, but it had a ripple-on effect throughout the world. I want to ask you about kind of the the niceties that, that happened post Scalia's death. Because one thing you said was that in dying, Scalia did more to achieve climate action than, than most people will do in their lifetime. And yet it seemed interesting in that even from, from liberal people or people who would be concerned about climate change, there were some, you know, niceties just honoring him as, as uh, you know, a really intelligent guy, uh, you know, one who's really committed to the, the rule of, of law. Um, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, because when you when you look at it, on the one hand, on the on the stakes of, of what climate change means for the world, for, means for, you know, the survivability of nations even, do you think that we, we should have to pretend that he was a, a good person? Do you think that's misguided? Or what's your view on that? I think it, um, yeah, there certainly have been a lot of nice things said about Scalia after his death. But I think it, when you look at those, um, it helps to put that in context of the culture. In some countries, after somebody dies, there's a very vigorous and healthy debate as to how they contributed to society. Were they evil? Were they good? Uh, the U.S. culture is different than that. And after somebody dies here, it's very rare to hear vociferous criticism of, of anything that they did during their life. And when you see what might seem like confusing um, accolades being showered on this guy by people who you would not expect to be doing that here in the U.S., it just helps to understand that that's a part of the culture. And, you know, make no mistake, everybody here understands the implications of Scalia's death. 
environmentalists and those who support climate action see his death as a very positive signal moving forward on climate action and on a number of other environmental regulations as well. But you're just not going to hear those types of criticisms in the U.S. After, right after somebody dies. But do you think that is true that like in dying that this, this ranks in a way among one of the signature recent achievements on, on climate change? Yeah, I, you know, as I'm a journalist, I can just call it as I see it. I, uh, it's it's absolutely the case that um, in his death, Scalia did um, much more to support worldwide climate action than most anybody else could ever hope to achieve. It was uh, the the repercussions of his death for global climate action for even you know what what the temperatures might be in the world in in the decades to come was very meaningful and. I'm not saying uh, I never would want to say that it's it, it's good that anybody dies, and I think that everybody else is is wary of saying that too. And I'm I'm definitely not saying that. But what I am saying is that uh, his death will have a profound and long-lasting impact in the world of climate action. I think for those of us outside of America, it's it's really kind of hard to fathom how you know five old men now I guess four old men who were you know appointed sometimes decades ago have such profound influence on on the rest of the world. The US system of uh, governance and government was developed hundreds of years ago uh, at a very different time and uh, the relics of decisions that were made then continue to um, well continue to uh, have strong effects uh, these days and it is very uh, unusual that, and it's frankly undemocratic that uh, justices who were appointed based on political leanings and so forth in decades past can have such tremendous and outsized influence. And that type of a system, given uh, the American Constitution and, and given the way, uh, given the amount of hard work that it takes to make any kind of changes to the American political system, is probably going to perpetuate for a, for a long time. But it's also worth pointing out that his death has triggered some conversation and debate about um, about that and, and about how the Supreme Court operates back in the U.S. as, as well as around the world. I mean, Americans are acutely aware of the of the vast power that's wielded by those by these nine justices. And one thing that um, Scalia did was was he happened to have died while he was on a on a on a junket that he wasn't paying for. He died in a in a, in a resort. Uh, it's called a ranch, but it's really a resort. He was being wined and dined by a businessman who has had uh, cases before the Supreme Court. And so that's, uh, you know, that's making news. People are starting to debate whether that's appropriate. Um, and I'm, I doubt that it's, well, it's obviously very unlikely that uh, there will be any changes anytime soon to how the Supreme Court operates. But um, as the rest of the world looks at this and, and kind of puzzles over it, I, I can tell you that there are a number of Americans who are also raising questions about this right now. Do we have a sense of what Obama's strategy will be or like who, who he might select as his nominee for the Supreme Court? Well, it's not clear yet uh, who Obama will nominate. There's certainly a number of candidates whose names are being thrown about. Uh, he he might go one of two ways. He might nominate somebody very liberal, um, potentially um, stoke some strong vociferous response from the Republicans and then change his mind and, and dial that back and, and put forth a nominee who um, is more likely to be ex considered acceptable to the Republican Party. He might go for a middle ground candidate uh, straight away. Almost anybody who he nominates is going to be more liberal than Scalia. Um, 
it's it's almost certain. I mean, most people expect that he will try to increase the diversity of the Supreme Court. Um, it's as you say, it's it's currently you know dominated by white men, old white men, and um, Obama's history of um, appointing. Uh, officials is that he tends to favor diversity. So that's one thing we can probably anticipate. He's not going to nominate somebody who is staunchly opposed to abortion or gun regulations or environmental regulations. Um, there's a few names that are already floating around, one of which has actually represented ExxonMobil uh, in the past as a, as a litigator. So I think everybody's really just... Um, kind of waiting to see who Obama nominates because it's there, there's really no way of knowing right now. And how does the, the presidential race uh, figure into all of this? And I guess climate change more broadly. You mentioned that, you know, on the Democratic side, Sanders and Clinton are, are running both fairly left at the moment. So what does the presidential campaign mean both for this, this vacancy in the Supreme Court and the climate fight more generally? The U.S. presidential elections are always very meaningfully. The outcome is always going to be important. The stakes for this election are very high. Um, there's no doubt about that. If, the, uh, if one of the Republican candidates wins, it's possible that the U.S. will be withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. It's possible that the Clean Power Plan, these new regulations, will be wound right back. Um, it's, it's the outcome of the election in November could really shape the future of not only the US, but also, you know, it could also reshape the nature of international climate diplomacy. If, if a Republican were to win and if they were to withdraw the US from the Paris Agreement, then the kind of diplomatic backlash that was seen when George W. Bush withdrew the US from the Kyoto Protocol would be magnified a, a, a number a, many many times over. It, it it could almost be akin to an act of war, given the um, climate impacts that we're seeing right now, and given the U.S.'s outsized role in causing climate change. It uh, it could be a very destabilizing force if a Republican were to win and subsequently withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. So, this is a very important election, and. It's obviously a pretty big deal here in the U.S. Uh, a number of people and, and, and interests are, are fighting very hard for their preferred candidate, but we are seeing really starkly different um, policies being presented by the, the two parties' candidates right now. How, how could it be seen as an act of war? Well, so the effects of global warming are now becoming very clear. The science, well, scientists can actually demonstrate the role of climate change in a number of disasters right now, natural disasters, so-called natural disasters. It's very easy to show the effects of climate change on heat waves and on droughts and even on sea level rise, which is now threatening the very existence of some of the smaller countries. So if the U.S. does not move forward with reducing its effects on global warming, then that could be seen as, as much the same as simply directly destroying another country. It, uh, there's nothing subtle about climate change anymore. In, in decades past, climate change was very theoretical. It's, oh, you know, these things are going to happen, this is going to happen, uh, you know, temperatures are going to go up, there's going to be more floods. Well, well, now we can actually see those impacts, and people are very aware of those impacts, even in the U.S., 
And to simply ignore climate change anymore would be a particularly hostile action by the US or, or any other government that uh, was responsible for such high emissions. What are the views of the remaining Republicans who are running for president? Are, are there any of them that say we should take action on climate change? Or are all of them basically saying this isn't a concern and we shouldn't take action? None of the remaining Republican candidates for president believe that climate change is a problem that needs to be taken seriously. In fact, a number of them, including, well, Trump, <laughs> for, for starters, have in the past spoken out against the very idea that climate change is something that humans are causing, which, of course, everybody recognizes is just a ludicrous and, and silly idea. I think in one tweet he said it was a conspiracy by the Chinese to uh, hurt America manufacturing or something like that. Donald Trump over the years has said a number of times that climate change is some kind of a Chinese conspiracy. Now, as, uh, now the Republicans are put in a tough position here because even their own voters support climate action. Even their own voters support the Clean Power Plan. That doesn't mean that they're going to be thinking about this when they, when they cast their ballots. But the leaders of the Republican Party seem to be very out of touch with their own people on climate change, increasingly so. And what we're seeing recently is these Republican presidential candidates start to subtly dial back their climate science denialism. Donald Trump has now claimed that he was just making a joke about the, the Chinese conspiracy being the, <laughs> the cause of climate change or, or whatever his logic was. Uh, you see more Republicans talking about clean energy, which I just saw an article today. Uh, clean energy is kind of a code word for climate action among Republicans now because the party doesn't really, its, its culture doesn't really permit talking about climate change, but there is a subtle shift underway in that Republicans are starting to try to figure out how they can be seen as being a bit less ridiculous on climate change. So it, it's, it's really unclear what a Republican president would do on climate change. A lot of the bombastic things that we've been hearing from them in recent years would suggest to us that the US would withdraw from the Paris Agreement, that the Clean Power Plan would be watered down to, to be meaningless, if not entirely revoked. But um, time will tell. Uh, it's, it's really unclear. It's, it's possible that a, a Republican president might not be as opposed to the idea of climate action as, as they're saying right now. But certainly there is a big difference between the Republicans and the Democrats when it comes to fighting climate change. And it's something that the Democrats have been taking advantage of. They've really been using this as a wedge issue. Obama makes fun of Republicans all the time now for denying climate science. And, and a number of other Democrats are, are doing the same thing. And Republicans, frankly, haven't really come up with a strategy for responding to those criticisms other than to, to double down on, on the rhetoric against climate change and then to kind of try to subtly figure out how they can change their messaging. But this is a, this is a major issue. Climate change is a, is a major wedge issue that the Democrats are using against the Republicans right now. So, but if you said that even most or many Republican voters are, you know, in favor of taking action on climate change, then why is there such uniformity among uh, Republican senators and presidential candidates saying that it's not a problem? It's... Difficult to say exactly why the Republican Party leaders would be uh, out of step with the constituents on the issue of climate change, but it's definitely worth noting that uh, a number of uh, politicians take very generous donations for their campaigns from the fossil fuel industry. 
there is the American political system is very vulnerable to what would be seen as outward corruption in some other countries. You're allowed to take donations from ExxonMobil and then vote on legislation that affects ExxonMobil without recusing yourself, which in other countries would not be allowed. But I think that the role of corporations, of fossil fuel companies and so forth in the American political process can help to explain at least some of the resistance to climate action from some of the Republican candidates. Well, to end off, I'd be curious what your takeaway is from from this challenge of the clean power plan and, and the uncertainty uh, going forward. What is your takeaway from all of this? I think that when you look at the high drama in the U.S. over the last couple of weeks with the Supreme Court ruling, then Scalia's death, and now the debates in Washington over who should replace him and, and, and how, and then if you look at the knock-on effects that that has had around the world in terms of some other countries looking at the US and wondering if the Paris Agreement even has a future. I think it's just a reminder of how fragile the Paris Agreement is and, and how fragile the, the world's early movements towards taking action on climate change still are. There's obviously a very strong business motivated movement towards clean energy sources. Solar and wind are doing very well. They'd be doing much better if fossil fuel companies didn't receive so many subsidies, but when it comes to actually making conscious policy-based efforts to protect the climate, we're still in very early days. And although there was a lot of excitement about the Paris Agreement, you know, we're not we're not home yet. Uh, this could this could easily be destroyed um, for years to come by just a you know a few things falling in a particular way in, in one major country, be it China, be it the US, be it Europe. And I think that, uh, yeah, this is just a, a, a big reminder that uh, for those who want to continue the momentum towards climate action, uh, they, you know, they need to, to remember that they need to keep fighting. Well, John Opton, it's uh, certainly a lot hangs in the balance and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the next uh, few months. Thanks for explaining to us some of the background. Well, it's great to be with you, and thanks for your time. That was my interview with John Upton, journalist and senior writer for Climate Central. And that's it for The Elephant this time. The Elephant is made with support from the Climb Kick, that's KIC Alumni Association. It's a community of entrepreneurs and young professionals working on creating a climate-resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. Our website is elephantpodcast.org, where we have all of our previous episodes. And you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. Feel free to drop me a message over email. You can get me at kevin at elephantpodcast.org. And if you like the show, recommend it. I'm Kevin Caners. See you soon.